0: That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island so I know what it looks like when the experts get it wrong. This week, we take a different look at the problems of nuclear reactors in our backyards with Harvard-educated urban planner Torgan Johnson. Torgan has been deeply involved in the battle against the San Onofre restart in Southern California and brings a unique perspective to our understanding of the impact of a possible nuclear disaster here. It was such a fascinating interview, we went a little long, but hang in because the expertise Torgan has brought to bear on our local nuclear disaster-in-waiting has applications and languaging that can be used by other activists and organizations in your local battles. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, December 11, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. First, we go to Japan, where on Friday, December 7, A 7.3-magnitude quake, which has now been upgraded to 7.4 and is classified as two earthquakes, struck at 5.29 p.m. under the seabed off the northeast shore of Honshu, 150 miles off the coast of Japan. It was the largest aftershock since immediately after last year's quake, according to the National Earthquake Information Center in Colorado. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education said... I don't believe that what Tokyo Electric said after the quake is true. They said, don't worry, be happy. Everything is fine. There's some indication of a problem in Unit 1 at Fukushima Daiichi. Hydrogen gas has started to increase after the accident. It's still not at explosive levels, but it's gone up dramatically. He went on to say, I'm sure that components that were already damaged fell. Things that were hanging on the ceiling have now fallen on the floor. It's almost like after a hurricane, you have a lot of tree limbs that are still stuck in trees. So the next storm that comes through, those tree limbs come down. So the same thing is going to happen in each of the Daiichi units. The amount of radiation in Unit 4 spent fuel pool is equal to all 700 above-ground nuclear tests. That's a lot to think of every time the ground shakes. To see a video of the earthquake and how it hit Fukushima Daiichi... Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the blog page. Today, December 11th, Japanese journalist Iwakami Yasumi received this email from Mitsui Murata, former Japanese ambassador to Switzerland. This story comes through Fukushima Diary. The email read, The pump of the spent fuel pool in Reactor 4 has been having the spotty trouble, but it went out of order on 12-8-2012 the day after the earthquake. Nuclear workers were collected for emergency to replace the pumps, but it takes more than two to three days to fix, they say. Extra workers were brought in by helicopter even at night. According to a nuclear worker collected for the emergency, the concrete to reinforce the spent fuel pool is terribly deteriorating to be in the dangerous state, quote-unquote. A former executive manager of a major company who chose not to be identified commented, My fear has come into the truth. If it was merely the problem of the pump, it wouldn't be such an issue. But if the base to support spent fuel pool 4 has some damage where we can't see it, the situation is much more serious. Ambassador Murata reported, I sent this email to all the chief editors of national newspaper companies, NHK, and influential people in major mass media, but they all ignored it. I was shocked. I called the manager of disaster headquarters of Fukushima prefectural government, but he didn't know that, meaning the information that was passed in the email. It seems like they didn't report it to Fukushima local government. Meanwhile, more mutations are being found in the insect population around Fukushima. This report of an insect with a leg growing out of its head. There will be a photo of it on the Nuclear Hot Seat site. Again, this is sourced from our friend Mochizuki Yori and Fukushima Diary. He reports that these are the same kind of mutations that happened after Chernobyl. Moving over to India... Tension mounted on the sea strip around the nuclear power plant at Kudankulam as fishermen began a sea siege at around 11 a.m. on Monday, December 10. This is the second sea siege of the anti-nuclear protesters. A similar agitation on October 8 passed peacefully. But on September 10, a fisherman was killed in police firing in Tuticorin. while a few days later, another fisherman participating in Jal Satyagraha collapsed and died when a surveillance aircraft flew at low altitude. Jal Satyagraha is the policy of nonviolent resistance, the insistence on truth. It was developed by Mahatma Gandhi. Prior to commencing the sea siege... The convener of the People's Movement Against Nuclear Energy, PMAIN, S.P. Udaya Kumar, told media that they were being forced to agitate against the government due to the indifference towards their struggle. He said, Our people are arrested and the public movement at Idinthikarai is restricted, though we are staging our struggle in a peaceful manner. Hence, we have decided to protest against this undemocratic attitude of the government's. The protest was organized to coincide with Indian Human Rights Day. Good news out of France, this story courtesy Informable, Bloomberg, and Reuters. French power utility EDF received a fresh blow on Tuesday, December 4, after Italy's biggest utility announced it had pulled out from a project to build a next-generator nuclear reactor in northern France and five other power plants to be built in France using EPR technology. This came following last year's referendum in Italy to prevent nuclear energy from returning to the nation. The French utility admitted last week that changes in engineering and design due to stricter regulation in the wake of Japan's Fukushima disaster forced it to hike the construction cost of the European pressurized reactor being constructed in Flamanville in northern France to 8.5 billion euros, about 11.12 billion dollars. This more than doubled the original estimate. EDF stock prices have plummeted by 28% this year alone because of concerns about the cost of refurbishing current reactors and building new ones. Can't wait till it hits zero. That story opened the door for the French renewables industry to quickly denounce cost overruns at nuclear power plants and tout the fact that renewables are cheaper. The French Renewable Energies Syndicate said the situation wasn't surprising and let it be known that wind energy is now cheaper in France than new nuclear. In the United States, Hawaiian doctors are finding uranium in people's urine and residents are demanding action. A group of two dozen Big Island residents, many wearing hazmat-type suits, dramatically urged the State Department of Health, or go, thank you Homer Simpson, to investigate what's causing uranium to show up in Big Island residents' urine. Three MDs and a naturopathic doctor have patients who have tested high for uranium in urine, including levels exceeding three times the upper expected limit. Meanwhile, the University of New Mexico, along with the federal and Navajo governments, have launched a health study 30 years after uranium mines were shut down on the Navajo Nation. Great timing, guys. Researchers plan to determine whether ongoing exposure to contaminated sites may still be affecting pregnant women and children. While the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is working to clean up some abandoned uranium mines, hundreds of contaminated sites remain. Potential health impacts include lung cancer, bone cancer, and kidney disease, as well as miscarriages, birth defects, and early childhood cancers. Despite the long-term exposure to tens of thousands of people living next to mine waste, no comprehensive health studies have been conducted to assess the impact, and now a high rate of birth defects and miscarriages have many tribal members worried. This is planned deniability. If they don't take the stats, if they don't have the data, then they say, we don't know, because they don't. But if they did, they would. And we would, and the picture would not be pretty. I often award the numbnuts of the week for nuclear insanity. However, this has got to qualify as a compound case of evil numbnuts. The United Nations is to adopt advice on radiation that clarifies what can be said about its health effects on individuals and large populations. A preliminary report has found no observable health effects from last year's nuclear accident in Fukushima. Well, if you keep your eyes closed, you don't observe anything. The studies came from the U.N. Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, or UNSCIR, Having been officially approved already by the U.N. General Assembly, the reports, as well as a resolution welcoming them, will be endorsed in coming weeks. They will then serve to inform all countries of the world when setting their own national radiation safety policies. This is the thought police, the word police, on a worldwide level being perpetrated by the United Nations. Presenting to the UN General Assembly, UNSCAR's chair, Wolfgang Weiss Achtung, said that preliminary findings were that no radiation health effects had been observed in Japan among the public, workers, or children in the area of Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. UNESCO went ahead and put out its work plan for the coming year, that in 2013 they plan to complete the assessment of levels of exposure and radiation risks attributable to the Fukushima accident and create a report on the effects of radiation exposure on children. There is so much wrong with this. I'll have more to say on this in the final word today. Meanwhile, according to a draft report by the World Health Organization, cases of cancer caused by radiation from the Fukushima nuclear accident will not increase significantly, although the risk facing infants near the plant has risen. The WHO's draft report, obtained by the Asahi Shinbun, also said the health risks for people living outside Fukushima Prefecture were negligible regardless of age calling the increase in cancer in the most vulnerable populations who they identified as 20-year-olds living near Fukushima as statistically insignificant. Put that in quotes. So that's what the United Nations and the World Health Organization are saying to discount the truth of what's happening in Fukushima. Meanwhile, for an up close and personal report, this is excerpted from Letters from Mothers Evacuating with Their Children, Number 1. One mother wrote, I presumed that Koriyama, 60 kilometers from Fukushima Daiichi, was not seriously damaged, for it was not designated for evacuation-needed area. I was presuming if it were in a dangerous situation, the government would do something. Abnormal changes began to occur in my oldest son, a pupil, stomatitis, an inflammation of the mucus lining of any of the structures of the mouth, which may involve the cheeks, gums, tongue, lips, throat, and roof or floor, eczema, fever, epistaxis, which is nosebleeds, and so on. I didn't know at that time, but those are the very initial symptoms of health damage that people around Chernobyl had after the nuclear power plant accident. Those symptoms are occurring on not only my son, but also many children living in Fukushima and, broadly, the Tohoku Kanto area. Minister Idano's words, quote, It doesn't influence our health immediately, end quote, means it does someday. Even if it doesn't influence our health immediately, we will be damaged in our health in the near future after being radiated for a long time. It has already. This week's interview runs 30 minutes instead of the usual 20, but the information is so rich, compelling, and clear that I couldn't bear to deprive you of any of the content. It's well worth the extended listening time.
1: Torrigan Johnson holds two graduate urban planning degrees from Harvard and a professional degree in architecture from the University of Southern California. His work focuses on the interface between natural systems and the built environment, and he brings a unique perspective to the nuclear conversation based upon three separate professional disciplines. Torgan, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, Libby. How did you become involved in the issue of nuclear power? Prior
2: to the Fukushima disaster, I wasn't. And uh, what, what got me involved was watching the disaster in Japan unfolding on television, and realizing that uh, we had a a major economic disaster upwind of us in California.
1: You live in Southern California, don't you?
2: Yes. I remember from living in the Caribbean, living and working in the Caribbean, we had these things called tequila sunrises, which were Sahara dust being blown up off of the surface of the desert and carried across the Atlantic Ocean 6,000 miles. And it would descend on the islands where I lived, but as we'd see the sun come up, you'd have these bright colors. they look like California sunsets during Santa Ana wind conditions. What that was was the, these dust particles traveling across open ocean and descending. And when they'd land in the islands in Cuba and southern Florida, you know, it leaves a, a film of residue on your car that's so thick you have to wash the car off before you drive it. So I was aware that solid material can travel large distances. So as I'm listening to the news, they're saying that these triple meltdowns in Japan aren't going to deposit anything in California and I quickly knew something was wrong with that report so what I did is I went out and bought a Geiger counter and I told my wife I said we better monitor this and monitor the food and just see what we get we probably won't get any readings but let's just see And sure enough bought the Geiger counter and brought it home I said let's just check what we have
1: and this was how long after Fukushima had happened that you got the Geiger counter and started this process this was at the end of March So, about three weeks after the earthquake and tsunami started everything off?
2: Yes. What I found in my my shock was that the milk that I had been serving uh, my kids was radioactive, and Mm. we were detecting it in our refrigerator in San Diego County. So, that got me involved. I think at that point I realized that these nuclear disasters that we hear about actually impact populations as much as 5,500 miles away and it was at that point that I got involved and, and uh, started doing research and calling people and trying to get more information very little is coming from our official sources from the uh, EPA and the NRC because of that I, I really thought there was a need to become better informed and then start to inform the people around me, family and friends
1: Your background is that of an urban planner What does that bring to the discussion of nuclear power and nuclear power plant accidents?
2: Well, one of the things that I found alarming about the discussions that I was reading online, mostly from the nuclear industry, I was looking at their websites and so forth, is the discussion about nuclear power always comes through a filter that's a, a, a nuclear expert's filter, whether it's an engineer or a physicist. And what I'm more accustomed to, coming from a planning background, is the inclusion of other disciplines in discussions about development, for instance. So what I found was that the discussion was very narrowly focused, especially about uh, the Fukushima disaster. You know, all the discussion was really about the facility and things happening within the reactor buildings. But I knew I'm 5,500 miles away and my children are drinking radioactive milk. I realize that there needs to be a broader public discourse about the risks involved in operating civil nuclear power plants.
1: What are some of the other disciplines that you see as important to this discussion and perhaps you've been in contact with in your own work?
2: Back in August 27th of this year, the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, held a phone conference that was titled considerations of economic consequences within the NRC's regulatory framework. And the NRC was soliciting the public for help to improve their risk assessment models. And uh, I was surprised to find that there were only 20 people from the entire United States on that phone conference to discuss what I thought was one of the most pressing dangers in the country. And of those 20 people on the call, only five, including myself, spoke. And there were no representatives from other fields of expertise, such as real estate, uh, the insurance industry, the mortgage industry. There was nobody on the line from local business communities or local agricultural business. There were no planning officials. There were no city managers or mayors or county supervisors. There were no public interest law experts, et cetera.
1: Do you have any idea how the NRC let it be known they were having this call? Was there any kind of outreach into these communities of business people that deserve to be concerned about it?
2: I actually found out about it through an associate who was informed by a Nuclear Regulatory Commission representative, and it was through an email. And I think what's wrong about that is that the public generally doesn't understand what a nuclear disaster means to them. And that's obvious by the fact that there were only 20 people on that phone call as opposed to 200,000 people on the phone call.
1: The call was not well publicized. Which of course and, is one of their techniques for keeping people out of the conversation.
2: And what it really does is it shortchanges the NRC's ability to accurately model and respond to nuclear disasters. Because really, what it, it, the discussion was really about whether or not we should pick one of three options that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had presented to the public. So, I was listening online, and I I have a fairly technical background, but the acronyms that were being used made the whole discussion so inaccessible to somebody who's familiar with uh, economic consequences of disasters. While the conversation went on, the best option that we had was to pick an option that allowed the discussion to continue on further at a later time. So the priesthood
1: opened its doors to a further conversation as long as it's on the exact same terms of the priesthood, a.k.a. the NRC.
2: Yes, and, I, and, and, and what happened, I think, as the discussion evolved, there are only a, a small handful of people that actually continue to speak. So it's a very insular discussion. It's very nuclear engineering-centric discussion. And I think what they miss is the other information that would completely change the perspective on things like emergency response plans. What a planner does, a planner's perspective is to, when I look at a problem, I look at site conditions, first of all, and I look at adjacencies. If you if you give me a problem and you scribe a circle around it, I want to know what's happening in the next area larger so that it informs what I'm doing inside of that scribe circle.
1: So in other words, you want to know what the context is?
2: Absolutely. And I want to know I look at the natural conditions and I look at the man made conditions. If I'm if I'm doing a planning project, I want to know what, what makes this area unique, what makes it tick. What are the geographical unique features of this place, the qualities of this place that make it operate or were the the reasons why it came into existence in the first place? So if if I look at urban conditions, they're all unique. They're all cited for because of certain advantages, whether they're near rivers or they're near a shoreline or they're near a source of fresh water or a trade route. So these conditions are not generic, and they're not interchangeable, and there's no replacement value for these things if we lose them. For instance, I'll just take a a, a power plant that I'm familiar with, which is San Onofre, which is having
1: some problems right now, technical problems. Right. We've covered that quite extensively. We had a a special spotlight on last week's podcast.
2: What I noticed about San Onofre was that it has a a number of conditions that have an uncanny similarity with conditions at Fukushima prior to their disaster.
1: What are these conditions?
2: One of them is that we have a tsunami condition here in Southern California that most people are unaware of. There was a study done in 2005 by a man named Gerald Kuhn, and he found through a number of road cut excavations, I think about 600 excavations in the North San Diego County area, he found paleoseismic evidence of tsunamis in the past. And they were were at quite high elevations and far back in these estuaries. Now, the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station is also in North County, San Diego. So, to be finding tsunami evidence in the same county, same end of the county as your nuclear power plant, is alarming. The other thing I found is that the power plant is built down at sea level. It has a small seawall that's approximately 14 feet above high tide.
1: That's a normal high tide.
2: It's a normal high tide. And In talking to the author, he was saying that he estimated that the tsunamis were in the 30 to 35-foot range that generated these deposits. Now, what happened in Japan is that there was a man named Koji Minora who was looking at paleoseismic evidence two miles inland in rice paddies around Fukushima.
1: Was this prior to the nuclear facility being built?
2: This was 20 years before the nuclear disaster. I think that facility had about 40 years of, of smooth operation, relatively smooth operation. But while it was operating, you know, there, there were people from other disciplines sounding the alarm. That this region of Japan has had huge tsunamis in the past, which would render this facility, the Fukushima Daiichi facility, in a flood zone, tsunami flood zone. So there was there were people notifying TEPCO 20 years before the disaster that the Fukushima Daiichi plant is in a tsunami zone and there's a history of tsunamis. We have the same thing at San Onofre.
1: And has the attempt been made to notify the officials of that plant as to the difficulty?
2: Yes, I've taken that report and I've emailed it to just about everybody I could. I've also uh, made public presentations and brought this to the attention of a number of coastal cities here in San Diego County. It's not just the power plant, but it's also all low-lying development. I think we, as planners, can make terrible mistakes that cost society, And, and one of them is underestimating the natural risk or site conditions on a site before developing it. And along those lines, we have a large seismic fault offshore of the power plant. It runs past Solana Beach. It's about two and a half miles offshore of Solana Beach. And it's suspected that that fault line was what triggered the tsunamis that left the deposits up inside of the estuaries. And and it's speculated that it could be um, submarine landslides triggered by that fault line. And the difference between the Fukushima condition and and San Onofre is that Fukushima condition had a fault system that was over 100 miles offshore, whereas here in North County, San Diego, it it varies between two and a half miles offshore out to about six miles offshore by the power plant. And if you look at the speed of a tsunami as it's traveling roughly, roughly about a mile a minute towards shore, you just have a few minutes to respond in the case of San Onofre if you did have an event. A tsunami triggered seismic event or landslide off of the power plant.
1: Well, Torgan, it's clear that you have a vast amount of information and a fresh perspective to bring to the discussion of San Onofre in particular, but nuclear power plants in general. What are you doing to bring about a greater public awareness of the risks of nuclear power, and who in the world is listening?
2: What I'm noticing from the media coverage is that media coverage, at least in the mainstream media, is very limited. There's a wealth of information that comes through um, alternative media sources, firsthand accounts and so forth in Japan uh, regarding the Fukushima disaster. What I'm trying to do is combine that firsthand information that's coming in from Japan with my understanding of the built environment, the way I look at the built environment, The built environment represents roughly 35% of society's wealth, and that means that it's the private and public properties and all the land improvements on that land, and also the public and private infrastructure.
1: So would it be fair to say that everything that isn't nature is part of this land improvement and the built environment?
2: Yes, and it represents roughly 35% of, of our nation's wealth. So... In looking at the built environment, there's a complexity to it that isn't reflected in any of the discussions that I'm hearing from the nuclear industry about the siting of nuclear power plants and the consequences of a disaster at any of those power plants. San Onofre is unique in that it actually sits in the middle of what we call a megalopolis, and we have a continuous urbanized, built environment that runs from about Ventura County all the way down to the Mexican border and over down into Tijuana. And there's really no break except for right at Camp Pendleton, but it's it's relatively small now, about 16 miles, I think, of shoreline there, but we have dense urban development just on the east side of Camp Pendleton, which would be downwind of San Onofre. The other thing that I look at when I look at the the comparison, say, between Fukushima and San Onofre is the Fukushima disaster, the impact of that disaster, which is considered a a level
1: 7, I think. I think they're trying to invent a level 8 to represent the truth of what happened at Fukushima. That's probably not too far
2: off, and here's why. The Fukushima disaster, which we now see as one of the worst in history, is the result of only 20 percent of that disaster being blown on land, the other 80 percent of that disaster was blown out to sea and blown towards North America and blanketing the Pacific Ocean. The disaster that resulted in Japan, in Fukushima, Japan, in terms of its scale, if that were to happen here, imagining that San Onofre, if we had an accident here, San Onofre is at the far west edge of this megalopolis. And when I look at the wind rows, which is a diagram that shows the the wind direction throughout the year at the power plant, the arrows point in all directions. We have a prevailing westerly, but we also have periods in the year where the wind blows to the north, blows to the south. Sometimes it's blowing out to sea in the evenings, in the offshore conditions. And most of the time it's blowing in an easterly, either northeasterly or uh, east or southeasterly direction, which is basically those arrows are pointing at the five surrounding counties around the power plant. Which are all built environments. This is all built environment, and it also represents the eighth largest economy in the world. In other words, if California was its own country, its economy would be the eighth largest in the world. So we have a power plant, which I've now learned has the equivalent of several Chernobyl disasters' worth of radioactive material on site, a lot of it in what are called uh, spent fuel pools,
1: Meaning they are open?
2: They're open. They don't have any containment structure around them. And they're sitting about 300 yards from the main north-south artery in California, which is the I-5. And there's a rail line that runs parallel to it. Just to the east, about 24 miles or so, I believe, is is the I-15, the 15 freeway, which is also another major north-south artery. And that happens to be downwind of the power plant. So our Two main north-south arteries, actually, are relatively close to the power plant when we talk about nuclear disasters. There was an atmospheric research facility in France. The CEREA did a modeling of the Fukushima disaster, and it showed the plume. Actually, there were two phases, I believe, of the plume moving across the Pacific. And the plume covers the entire northern Pacific basin. It goes from Fukushima, Japan, and starts to touch the west coast of North America in about six days. When you look the at the plume, plume that
1: didn't happen, quote unquote.
2: Yeah, the plume that right that the industry says didn't happen, which I actually detected in my food in my refrigerator, traversed the Pacific Basin in about six days, and it and it was covering the basin. It wasn't a small plume that moves across the basin like a ship across the sea. It it, it was like a a cloud that covered the basin. So we're looking at 5,500 miles of cesium-134 and 137, and radioactive iodine-131 traversing the Pacific Basin in about six days. When you look at that, you look at the size and the speed of a nuclear disaster, you realize that any attempt at evacuating a nuclear disaster, if you're living near the power plant, is absolutely a futile thing. There's no way you can escape something that's that large and moving that fast. So. I think what the public needs to understand is, what's the nature of these disasters, how large are these plumes, potential plumes, and how fast do they move? And then, when the plumes move across the land and they deposit the the radioactive isotopes on the land, what does that mean for the contaminated areas? And if you look at the Chernobyl disaster, we have about 38,000 square kilometers of land that's considered highly contaminated. The official exclusion zone, I believe, is only 2,600 square kilometers, but the highly contaminated zone, the area that researchers are finding high contamination, extends out to an area that's 38,000 square kilometers. It includes the, 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 the town of Chernobyl and Pripyat and 187 smaller communities that were abandoned
1: We're looking at, really, a disaster that could wipe out the United States, not just economically but in terms of its inhabitability.
2: Yes, you know, sometimes it sounds so outlandish when when you hear people say those things, but if you look at what a built environment is and how, how it functions, and then you look at these nuclear disasters, you can see that the disasters are at a scale that could wipe out entire regions and on very short notice, too. In other words, Japan, it was a seismic event that triggered it. It would probably be something like that, too, here in Southern California. I know that seismic experts here are predicting a large quake to hit the area on the South San Andreas Fault, and that's also not far from San Onofre. I know that the newport Inglewood rose Canyon Fault Line that runs offshore of the power plants, about six miles offshore of the power plant, is described as a major component of the San Andreas Fault system.
1: So if the San Andreas goes, it's likely that the fault just offshore of San Onofre would go with the unfortunately predictable or foreseeable results of a really bad day at a nuclear reactor.
2: Nobody really knows, and that's, that's the whole clincher in this, is that seismic experts can't predict the magnitude, the exact time, or the exact location of large quakes. We just had one off of Japan, and and a 7.3, I believe. Actually, it's just
1: been upgraded to a 7.4, and they believe it was a conjunction of two earthquakes. That was the news this morning on ENE.
2: Well, it's interesting that there were no seismic experts that, that predicted that thing a day before. In other words, even with the, the, the seismic community focusing on that portion of Japan, they weren't able to send out a warning ahead of time. So really, they don't have the capacity yet to predict these things. So really, if you have a seismic condition off of a nuclear power plant, what you can say as a planner is we have a full-scale crash test of a nuclear power plant that we can study. That's Fukushima. Those are U.S.-designed nuclear power plants, and they have relatively close operating procedures as the U.S. nuclear power plants. And we've just seen what happens when one of those is impacted by a natural force like a large earthquake and then a tsunami. So we understand what those are. And we understand now how big the contamination zones are. And when we compare it to Chernobyl, the Fukushima one is close in scale. I think the Fukushima disaster is roughly about 30,000 square kilometers of area. There was actually a Kyoto professor, Asahi Shimbun, who says that 30,000 square kilometers of Japan would be evacuated if Japan followed the law on illegal radioactive waste. That area is 20 times larger than the exclusion zone that exists now. Now remember, the 30,000 square kilometers is the result of only 20% of that accident actually being blown over Japan. Take 30,000 square kilometers and you look at our condition here, and if you were to take Los Angeles County, which is about 10,517 square kilometers, and Orange County, which is about 2,044 square kilometers, in San Diego County, which is about 10,877 square kilometers, and those three counties encompassing a population of about 15.99 million people, it's about the size of the highly contaminated area in Japan. That
1: only got 20%.
2: That only got 20%. Now, if you go back to what I said earlier, a disaster here at San Onofre it would blow most of the disaster over land and urbanized area. So we actually have other counties, too. We have Riverside and San Bernardino counties, and then we have everything east. Now, if you look at the contamination that travels 5,500 miles, you can imagine...
1: It would have a much shorter distance to travel. There would be much more of it. Everything
2: downwind is basically the United States, so that 5,500 miles would leave you with, with high levels of contamination down in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. I mean... The, it's unbelievable to think about that, but that seems to be a relative comparison of the Japanese event and a potential event at a power plant like San Onofre or Diablo Canyon.
1: Torgan, you make such a compelling argument and with such clarity. What are you doing or what is your availability to get this information out further? And I wanna know where your book is.
2: <laughs> First what I did is I tried to I tried to uh outreach to to uh friends and neighbors and, and see if they were if they were observing the same things that I was. And what I, what I realized is that most of us are misinformed by the industry and by mainstream media that don't really want to cover this uh, too closely, this event in Fukushima too closely, nor do they want to cover the San Onofre issue as closely as they should. But what a large group of us have been doing is we've just been going uh, in a very grassroots level to our respective uh, city councils and have started discussions at the city councils about, the issues at San Onofre. We're looking at this power plant first. What we're finding is that, at first, the city councils and city staff aren't really too receptive to discussing it. They really say that this is not their jurisdiction. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, through federal preemption, has taken all the safety issues of nuclear power plants and controls them in Washington, which means that local governments have no say in the safety issue, which is really kind of outrageous if you think about it, because it's the local communities that take the full impact of a disaster at the power plant.
1: Right. It's I, easy to legislate when you're at a distance, but not when you're dealing with the actual effects and the impact of whatever the decisions are that have been made.
2: Yes. Yeah, so and the, the, What I found is that the local city governments can understand is they can understand that a nuclear disaster impacts their population. It impacts public health, and it impacts properties, and it impacts local businesses.
1: Which, of course, relates directly back to their tax base.
2: Yes, and this is what we saw in Japan. We saw it also in, in Chernobyl, the Chernobyl disaster. But if you think about this, that for most people, their home, their personal home, is their financial nest egg. And in a way, it's a... Kind of a private form of Social Security for many people as they go into retirement and old age. So these homes, if they wind up impacted by a nuclear disaster, either in, let's talk about California's two power plants, Diablo Canyon or San Onofre, basically what you have is you have a very short amount of time to evacuate or shelter in place. Either condition, if it's a serious plume, renders your property worthless. And, of course,
1: there's no recourse because of the Price-Anderson Act that limits the nuclear industry's responsibility in the case of a major accident.
2: Well, that's a big problem. And what you brought up with Price-Anderson is a big problem because their fund right now, the Price-Anderson Fund, is about $10 billion, or as high as $11 billion.
1: Fukushima right now, they're estimating at at least $1 trillion, and that's not even the end of it.
2: Correct. Just looking at San Clemente, the town just to the north of San Onofre, if you look at the 2010 census data and you look at the number of residences there and you look at the average cost per home, you come up with a number of about $16 billion. So a tiny coastal town next to the power plant, just a couple miles away from the power plant, could easily lose all of its property. And if you look at just the residential component, not the commercial, not the public land, not the infrastructure, but just the residential components, it's only a, a portion of the of the property values in San Clemente. It's sixteen billion. So you're six billion in excess of the Price Anderson fund. That's one city. And that's when I was in the Virgin Islands I had a planning firm there for eight years and I came in right after Hurricane Maryland, which was a category five. It had just destroyed much of the island. I got to the island two years after that hurricane and I was there for eight years. I started out working in disaster reconstruction i got pulled into doing a number of large projects there and what i learned down in the caribbean is that even with the ability to throw large sums of money at the problem of reconstruction and economic revitalization it's really like trying to bring a comatose person back to consciousness and it's not an easy task it doesn't happen just because you throw money at it so the price anderson fund the notion that you can throw money at an area, or give let's say you were to wipe out large portions of Southern California. There's things like a container port at the Port of Los Angeles, which carries 40 percent of all containerized goods and services into the United States. You can't hand the Port of Los Angeles a check and say, here's replacement value for the port. It doesn't work that way, and yet that's how Price Anderson and the nuclear industry see nuclear disasters. I know from Reconstruction in the Caribbean that even with the best of intentions and having the political will and having the money to do it, these places don't come back to life. So when you talk about a nuclear disaster and a, and a tiny fund to try to revive Southern California, I, we're really looking at maybe the worst man-made catastrophe in history. So It's a serious a serious issue at San Onofre. I see this as the fact that they're trying to restart a damaged nuclear reactor next to an active fault line upwind of the 8th largest economy in the world just shows me what a complete foolish endeavor this is to not just shut that power plant down immediately and just call it a loss. There is a man named Victor Glinsky. I've been emailing him. He's a two-time commissioner of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He was on the first commission. He was also head of the Rand Corporation's Physical science Department. He holds an engineering degree in physics from Cornell University and a Ph.D. in physics from Caltech.
1: So he's got heavy creds.
2: Yes, he's respected both in the public and in the nuclear industry. His quote is, you ask what lessons we should draw from the Fukushima experience. He says, let me mention what to me is the key lesson coming out of the accident, one that has not gotten nearly enough attention either in the public or at the NRC, and it's the extensive radioactive land contamination of the area around the Fukushima site. And he says, even with effective evacuation of surrounding populations, there may be no home for those populations to go back home to. So, really, what we're looking at is we're looking at an evacuation. You hear a siren go off, and you have just a short amount of time for what amounts to, you know, Edison calls it an evacuation plan, but what it really amounts to is a permanent mass exodus plan.
1: It would be the creation of a generation of nuclear refugees here in the United States that would have to be absorbed in other areas.
2: Yeah, and think, think of what a quick transformation that would be from people living the California dream in these beautiful homes and plant communities to becoming homeless nuclear refugees in just really a matter of hours.
1: That's quite a picture. Torgan, this is fabulous information. It's very detailed, and clearly there's a lot more that came from with you. If people wish to engage further in the conversation, perhaps talk with you about speaking or addressing people or publishing that book she said, Planting the Seeds, where would be the best place to contact you?
2: They could reach me by email at torganjohnson at gmail.com. T is in Thomas, O-R-G-E-N. Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at gmail.com.
1: Torgan, thank you so much. The information that you have provided, I think, will prove useful to other activist groups that are looking for new angles, new ways of framing the conversation, the argument, and give us another perspective on just how dire the nuclear situation is and why we have to continue to fight against it.
2: Yes, in in a nutshell, I would just say for the public to understand that a nuclear disaster isn't something that we experience for a few days and go back home. What a nuclear disaster would mean at any one of our 104 U.S. nuclear power plants would be that the surrounding communities would experience instantaneous destruction of wealth and personal financial ruin.
1: Something to think about. Torgan, thank you so much for being on Nuclear Hot Seat.
0: Jorgen Johnson is an urban planner and architect who lives in Southern California. Among the stories we didn't have a chance to get to today, but that will be linked on the Nuclear Hot Seat site, are Double Your Trouble with Nuclear Power, an article in counterpunch.org written by Joseph Mangano and Dr. Janet Sherman, M.D., information on Joe Mangano's new book, Mad Science, the Nuclear Power Experiment, and that footage, a Fukushima Daiichi shaking during the 7.4 earthquake. It's quite terrifying to watch. Here's today's final thought. I was recently loaned a book called American Ground Zero, The Secret Nuclear War by Carol Gallagher. It was published in 1993 and is difficult to get. It's the story of the above-ground testing program from Hiroshima to the 1963 nuclear test ban treaty told in the stories of the men and women who were exposed to radioactive fallout and then lived with and died by the terrible consequences. Some were military personnel who loved and fought for and served our country bravely. Others were downwinders in Utah, living close to the top-secret Nevada test site. None received any clear information, any honest information on what they were facing because of the radioactive fallout. The book uses personal stories and full-page photos to show the human face of nuclear horror as God and country-loving folks found themselves subjected to life-destroying doses of radioactive fallout and a government that didn't care and never acknowledged their pain. Nothing has changed. This week's stories on the U.N. planning control of the nuclear languaging of entire countries and the World Health Organization shilling for TEPCO and GE Hitachi and the Japanese government by insisting there's no real health risk to the children of Fukushima outraged me almost beyond language. Who are these people, these organizations, to put all of our lives, even life itself, at risk? Who gave them the right to control the conversation, to claim expert status and piss on the rest of us? Maybe it's my background as an incest survivor that makes me so aware of and sensitive to the way perpetrators infiltrate the world with their evil cunning that gets them off the hook. Because that's what these people are, nuclear perpetrators. They don't care if we're hurt, if we scream, if we cry against their outrages. They don't want to hear it if we demand justice. Just like the abuse of father, priest, coach, teacher who betrays a child's trust to fulfill his own sick desires, the nuclear perpetrators betray our trust by not taking all reasonable measures to ensure that we're safe, protected, and no harm is done to people or the environment. In the recovery movement, Incest is defined as a crime of power over a child that takes a sexual form. These nuclear perpetrators are committing a crime of power, in every sense of the word, over every man, woman, and child on the planet. And the form of that perpetration is nuclear. The parallel is exact. In recovering from sexual abuse... I learned that the proper accessing and expression of rage is crucial to moving from victim to survivor and beyond. I now recognize that beyond, for me at least, means activist. Perpetrators are bullies, sick and weak and short-sighted and vengeful people who don't give a rat's ass about anyone who isn't them, a peer, or a superior. Their method of evaluation usually involves vast sums of money, nothing of the heart, the soul of the individual. They think they have all the power, and what they do to us will never catch up with them. They obviously haven't counted on the power of our collective, focused rage to take them down. Nothing is more freeing, more empowering, than speaking truth to power standing up and channeling our former pain and helplessness into rage that expresses itself as action. Nuclear is not a done deal. We can and will influence these people and the future. Every week, this podcast chronicles our successes and our ongoing challenges. Those of us who oppose nuclear are an international family of heart and soul holding the line while attracting others to join us. And they are joining. Let's protect the children and the inner child we each have inside. By our actions, we will create the world in which we want to live. Now, who's got a strategy for going after the UN? Send it to info at And the best ones will be reported back on this podcast. Hey, the website is being revised. Yay! It's still a work in progress. And we have a new donate button. Donate, donate, donate. No amount too small. Everything that comes in goes to support this podcast and the activities I engage in to cover our news so that you get it fresh, hot, and direct. As of the first of the year... Anyone at any time who donates any amount will receive a link to a special bonus, the first chapter of my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark. So if you'd like to support this insanely work-intensive weekly podcast, I would truly be grateful for anything that you're willing to offer. It all helps. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 11, 2012. Material for this podcast was gathered from enenews.com, Fukushima Diary, written by Yori Mochizuki, Fairwinds Energy Education, Bloomberg, Reuters, Japan Times, The Times of India, Informable.com, Asahi, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. I love you guys. You can find all our podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. There is now a link on the homepage, or you can click on the blog tab. You can also reach us on both Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat pages and on iTunes podcasts, where you are supposed to be able to subscribe for free, and we're working to fix that glitch. Share us. Link to us. This is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep.